0: Hello, my friends. Today as astonishing moves. 19 senior Canadian lawyers, diplomats, politicians sign a letter to Justin Trudeau asking him to be even more pro-China than he is. What does that mean? How, could, how can that be? How can you be more China, pro-China than he is? Well, they, they actually come out and say that he should give in to the blackmail. They use that word, blackmail or extortion, in their letter. I go through the letter, but more importantly than the substance of the letter... I look at the 19 people who signed it, and I ask the question, are they getting paid by China? I'll take you through it in a moment, but first let me invite you to become a subscriber to Rebel News Plus. It's eight bucks a month. You get the video version of this podcast, which I like to think is worth it. Plus you get weekly shows by Sheila gunn and David Menzies. And finally, you know, it helps us stay strong here because we don't take a dime of that government money you know, if, you, if you're looking for a bit of a deal, we got that too. Uh, if you go to rebelnews.com and just click subscribe, you can get a whole year's worth of Rebel News Plus for just 80 bucks. So that's actually a, a discount, as you can see. Okay, here's today's podcast. Tonight, at the exact same time, the Chinese embassy and a bunch of senior liberals make a last push to free the Huawei executive from jail, and not extraditer. I think we have a corruption problem, people. It's June 25th, and this is the Edge of the Vance Show. Why should others go to jail why? when you're a biggest carbon why? consumer I know? There's 8,500 customers here, and you won't give them an answer. The only, the only thing I have to say is the government, But why? It's because it's my bloody right to do so. We've talked with our friend Gordon G. Chang about the new style of Chinese diplomacy that they call Wolf Warrior. It's what it sounds like, basically a decision to stop being bland and diplomatic, the normal way of being, you know, in foreign affairs, and to start being a little bit more like internet trolls, insulting, harassing, going rogue, really. But with the full approval of Beijing, it's named after a hit Chinese movie in which a rogue Chinese soldier becomes a Rambo figure. Here's a short clip from that movie's trailer
1: Wolf Warrior.
0: Yeah, so wolf warrior diplomacy, no more Mr. Nice Guy. I wasn't aware that China ever was Mr. Nice Guy beforehand. I think it's the same China as always, a communist dictatorship. It just has stopped pretending to be the, like the rest of the international community. It's embracing its inner Mao Zedong. Here's just an example from today. You could find other examples literally every hour. This is from China's official English language foreign policy, propaganda arm called Global Times. This guy is their editor, their top boss, who obviously thinks of himself as a wolf warrior. Which country had committed sin to African people in history? Which country is more friendly and respectful to Africa today? Which is sincerely supporting development of Africa? African people have their own judgment. They don't need American white supremacist government to speak for them. Oh, oh. white supremacist government. Imagine saying that. Imagine saying that at all, let alone imagine China saying that. China that has a million Uyghurs in a mass internment camp. China that invaded Tibet and has an ethnic cleansing project of bringing in millions of ethnic Chinese people to dilute the Tibetan people in their own country. Uh, China that was, as part of their Wolf Warrior BS, declared that black people from Africa were the real source of the virus in China, and so police in China started rounding up blacks. Apartments kicked out black people, restaurants said no black people allowed, and this was all official. There are apparently a lot of black people living in China, mostly from Africa, I didn't really know that. But the footage of them being rounded up on the streets of China is shocking and ubiquitous. Imagine saying that the Wuhan virus came from Africa. That's pure racism. But why not? Another wolf warrior claimed it came from the United States military. So yeah, wolf warriors, they all think they're the Chinese Rambo. And here's what the Chinese wolf warriors in Canada look like. China suggests it will free Kovrig and Spavor if Canada allows Huawei executive Meng to return home. Oh, so they're not even pretending those two are anything more than hostages. Pawns and a wolf warrior tit-for-tat. They're not pretending anymore. Except that Rambo... The real Rambo, and even Wolf Warrior in the movie, he never took civilians hostage. He's the guy who freed civilian hostages, even the Chinese Wolf Warrior. The Chinese government says that if Canada sets Huawei executive Meng Wanzhou free, it could affect the fate of two Canadians jailed and charged with espionage by Beijing. China has repeatedly rejected suggestions there is any connection between its detention of former Canadian diplomat Michael Kovrig and entrepreneur Michael Spavor and Canada's arrest of Ms. Meng in December 2018 on an extradition request from the United States. On Wednesday, however, a top spokesman for China's Ministry of Foreign Affairs linked the two matters. (laughs) Imagine thinking the two items weren't linked, even for a second. You'd have to be as stupid as François-Philippe Champagne, our pro-Beijing foreign minister. I I take that back. He's obviously not stupid. In fact, he's quite successful. He's experienced, he's smart, he's well-traveled. François-Philippe Champagne is not stupid at all. He's just hopelessly compromised. He has become a Chinese asset. I mean, he's been playing for China's team for decades. Imagine being a wealthy business executive in London, England, the financial capital of the world, hundreds of banks, That that was Francois Philippe Champagne, and he chose, of all the banks in London, a Chinese government bank called Bank of China for his London mortgage. That is not normal. That's what you do if you're a Chinese sympathizer or a Chinese asset, or maybe if you live in London and work for the Chinese embassy. No one else does that. He's our foreign minister. Our government is compromised. I haven't shown you this clip in a while. Just a reminder, Justin Trudeau's own brother... Alexandra Trudeau wrote a pro-China propaganda book that was actually published by the Chinese government called Barbarian Lost Travels in the New China, as in, we Westerners are the barbarians, China's dictatorship is the civilized one. Uh, Trudeau, uh, the brother, had a lot to say about China. He could have published his book with any real publisher in the world, frankly, I mean, someone would have published it, but of all the publishers in the world, just like Francois Philippe Champagne, of all the banks in the world, he chose to take his mortgage with the bank of China. Uh, Alexandre Trudeau, of all the publishers in the world, he chose to have his book published by the communist part of China, the the dictatorship stuff. Who does that? Well, this guy does.
1: The book now, being a barbarian in China, in the new China. Uh, So why the book and why that title? Well, the book itself was sort of an organic uh, phenomenon. The uh, Chinese wanted to write a book on m- my father's visit to China and they asked me to write, this was in '60, and uh, they asked me to write the preface and the Canadian edition was published in Vancouver. They published it so they asked me to write a longer preface and I said fine uh, but I would like to go back to China and get into things, rediscover the country and when I went there I found I had so many things to say that they said well we can't put that in a preface. So we'll put it in a section. And actually, we'd like you to write a full book on it. Well, that was the pretext. But the idea is that China, uh, for someone like me, who uh, was involved in geopolitics for quite a long time, just can't avoid uh, China, which plays now a very important role.
0: His fake, weird style is so similar to his brother Justin Trudeau's, isn't it? Alexander has crazier eyes, though, doesn't he? So, yeah, the Chinese Communist Party has assets deep within the Canadian government. Our foreign minister, the brother of the prime minister, and obviously Justin Trudeau himself. I'm not saying they're actually paid by China. Well, no, actually, I, I, I think I am saying that. Yeah, I'm saying that. I mean, here's one example. Huawei, the Chinese Communist Party-controlled tech company that's the center of this political battle. They are a huge donor to the Liberal Party's think tank in Canada called Canada 2020. Huge uh, Chinese donations to the Trudeau Foundation, too. So, yeah, uh, they actually are on the payroll, uh, at least in that way. Do you know it's in other ways, too? Uh, look at this guy. You tell me, is this a Chinese-Canadian senator promoting Canada's interests, or is, a, or is this a Chinese senator in Canada? You tell me whose team he's on. And that's not an ethnic question. It's a question of the insane words this man says.
2: Senator Wu. <laughs> Thank you, Your Honor. My question for the government representative in the Senate has to do with the lead article in a national newspaper today concerning the views of two learned jurists on the ability of the government and the power of the government to now uh, stop extradition proceedings for Meng Wanzhou should they find that the extradition request was unwarranted and or should they feel that it is in the national interest. Furthermore, uh, the views of these two learned jurists suggest that to take these actions would not be a compromise on the independence of the judiciary, nor would it be outside of the rule of law. In the interest of the two Michaels who have been in in detention in China for many, many months now, and in the interest of the broader Canada-China relationship, Will the government take the opportunity of this fresh interpretation from the two very seasoned scholars and lawyers to have what Professor Rock calls, quote, a full debate based on a legitimate foundation of facts rather than an incantation of rubrics such as rule of law, independence of the courts, and sanctity of the judiciary? Trudeau
0: liberal, of course. Which brings me to the newest disgrace in this file. Of course, the Chinese embassy is going to behave like they do wolf warriors. How's that working out for you? By the way, that whole wolf warrior thing. Canadians have a more hostile view to China than has ever been recorded by pollsters before. Not just in Canada, but people around the world, too. There's a huge shift against China in global opinion and in Canadian opinion, but not at our elite levels because of money. For God's sakes, Hockey Night in Canada. They sacked John Terry as, uh, John, Don Cherry excuse me, as un-Canadian. But they take cash from China to run a Huawei ad right on the show. Absolute sellouts, of course, because money—and that's Ron McLean for you. Uh, Which brings me to the the latest uh, Wolf Warrior move. By a lot of people who care a lot about money. Look at this: a letter to the Prime Minister. Now I write letters to the Prime Minister all the time, but the CBC doesn't take my letters and make national news stories out of them. Um, In fairness, I'm not a former Supreme Court judge or a former diplomat. Let me read this story. Former parliamentarians, diplomats, pen letter calling on Canada to release Meng. Citing a legal opinion, signatories say Huawei executive Meng Wanzhou should be released. What? Citing a legal opinion, as in they paid some lawyer to write a letter? Did they not miss that Hmong actually had a real court hearing in a real court and a real judge heard from both sides, including Meng Wanzhou's actual legal team and they heard the real facts uh, unlike just some lawyer hired out of the Yellow Pages, and Meng Wanzhou lost her court case, and a neutral nonpartisan Canadian judge said Wang Zhou committed what on the face of it is an illegal act in Canada, and so the extradition process must proceed. Did these 19 signatories miss that? And so these senior, very important people, are literally writing to Trudeau to tell him to ignore our courts and just make a political decision, Chinese Communist Party style. And this is timed coincidentally with the Chinese embassy making the same demand, like that's just by chance, is it? This is a disgraceful letter. This is an un-Canadian letter. It's the letter of the China lobby of Chinese assets in Canada. And the only good thing I can say about it is that the signatories have done us a favor by signing it and thus outing themselves. And now we know who the apologists are. These are like people who in the 1930s were defending Adolf Hitler's Germany and saying that Canada should not beware of Hitler or Germany. They're just... You know, let's see if we can get along with them. That's what these people are like. There are a number of things in this letter that are word for word, what the Chinese embassy has been saying. In fact, I wonder how this letter was coordinated. Uh, was, was it arranged by the embassy? Did the embassy suggest it? Did they write a first draft of it? Were they shown it in advance? I wonder how much the embassy paid for it. Or more likely, how much Huawei itself paid. I mean, Huawei sloshing money around Canada 2020, Hockey Night in Canada, whatever. Do you doubt there's money here? Let me quote from the letter. It seems to us that the Meng Wanzhou extradition proceeding is making it impossible for your government to define and pursue an effective foreign policy towards China. What? (laughs) What? So a legal proceeding in our independent courts where Meng has the best lawyer's money can buy, a process that's 100% independent, that's making it impossible for Trudeau to govern? Impossible for him to deal with China? Now, Trudeau is perfectly capable of being a political failure on his own. No need to blame this trial. But this letter's written in the reverse, like a photographic negative. It's um, China, in fact, because of the Hmong matter that has turned rogue, not Canada. China has become rogue, abusive, hostile, and threatening because of the Hmong matter. It, It may well be that Trudeau has no idea what to do anyways. But it's because of China's erratic reaction, not because of a completely normal extradition hearing in a normal court done normally in Canada. This list of fancy people basically admit it. China is so mean and such a bully that they will surely continue to abuse the two Canadian hostages. So the only thing to do, uh, naturally, is to cave into the bully, to accept that relationship. China is the bully, and we're the country that gets bullied. So just give the bully your l- lunch money and stop resisting. Imagine someone actually more craven than Justin Trudeau. This is real. Unless the minister acts now, the two Michaels face indefinite confinement. So. That can't change or won't change. China's going to do what it's going to do. We can't demand that China change. We can't take any diplomatic or political steps against China. We can't kick out their foreign citizens clogging up our universities. We can't send home their diplomats. We can't ban Huawei or anything. We just have to comply. That's the advice here. That's the smart people. But the main thing about this letter, signed by all the fancy people, is that it deodorizes the threat, the extortion from the Wolf Warrior Embassy. Here you have fancy people saying, hey, guys, Sure, it's extortion, and sure it's bullying, and sure it's absolutely outrageous that they're literally holding these two men as hostages and demanding that we violate our own court system just like they do, just like they want us to do. But you can totally do it because we'll give you moral cover. That, that's, they admit it. Look at the language they use in their own letter. Canada's foreign policy is also being held hostage. So they acknowledge the obvious. And their solution is total capitulation, not only to foreign demands, but to undermine our own courts. They admit what they're doing. Quote, Of course it does not sit well with anyone to yield to bullying or blackmail. It's repugnant. Well, it it sure seems to sit well with you guys because you're saying to do it because you're important people and we should all listen to you, apparently. And... You guys are absolutely, totally, 100%, definitely not on the Chinese payroll yourselves. I mean, how dare I suggest such a thing? Look at some of the names who signed it. This one jumped out. Don Newman. He's on there. He's a former CBC News host. Gee, there's a shocker, a CBC journalist saying we should capitulate to communist China. But look under his name. It's signed journalist, broadcaster, author. And that's all true about Don. But hang on, look at this. Don Newman actually is on the Chinese payroll. He's the chair of Canada 2020's advisory board. They take huge sums of cash from Huawei. I already showed you that. Why didn't Don Newman disclose that? Hey, when Don Newman was still on TV, did he also take money on the side back then? I wonder. And hang on, did you know that Don Newman works for a lobbying firm called Navigator? At least that's what this website says. Uh, I I tried to contact him through that uh, contact info and it bounced back, so maybe he's no longer there. Does Don Newman... Does he do any work for Huawei? That's what Navigator does. They're lobbying for... I I sent him uh, an email this morning to both his Navigator email address and his Canada 2020 address asking him if he works for China, if he takes money from China. I'll let you know if he answers. It's just weird that he doesn't disclose his other identities. Isn't it weird? Like Louise Arbour, the very first name on the letter, she works for the United Nations right now. So obviously she's pro-China. I wonder why she left that part out of her identity. It just says that she's the former president of the International Crisis Group. That's the company that Michael Kovrig was working for when he was kidnapped. I'm sure she wants him back for many reasons, but maybe that personal interest should have been disclosed. I get it. That company can't get their employee back, so they want Trudeau to sell out every Canadian value to get him back. I, I understand. I I just think it's gross to ask an entire country to debase itself. And I think it's especially gross for a former Supreme Court judge to say so. Next on the list, Lloyd Axworthy and Ed Broadbent, a couple of hard left-wing globalists, no surprise there. But I see a couple of conservatives on the list, Derek Burney, Lawrence Cannon, and they're identified as former diplomats. Again, that is true. But is that really the most salient characteristic about them for this letter? Let me give you an example. Uh, Derek Burney works for a pro-China think tank. And he pumps out extreme pro-China propaganda for them. Like this, why Canada needs a deeper relationship with China. And like this, why Canada must pursue a trade relationship with China. And after more than five years of on and off exploration, it is time to take the plunge on a free trade agreement with China. Could you imagine a free trade deal with China, giving them full access to our economy, even more than they have now, no tariffs, nothing like that, but for our side, none of the legal or property rights or contracts or rights of protection for Canadian companies and our intellectual property. Imagine just saying, hey, let's take the plunge with China. I mean, let's get in bed with China even more deeply than we are. What could go wrong? Yeah, uh, maybe that should be disclosed here. Why was his role as a pro-China lobbyist not mentioned? I see E. Forte signed the letter he served on something called the Security Intelligence Review Committee. That's the oversight panel that reviews the conduct of our spies. So these are the people watching over our spies. They over, oversee CSIS, the Canadian Security Intelligence Service. So Eve Fortier was the guy keeping tabs on our, on our version of the CIA. He signed this letter? That terrifies me. How can the man who was on an ultra-high security Top secret committee, the committee to review our spies. How can a man who watches over the watchman, literally the guy we rely on to look over the other guys that we rely on, how can he sign a letter admitting that China is blackmailing us and recommending to Trudeau that we give in to the blackmail? Did he apply that same surrenderist view to his work at the Security Intelligence Review Committee? I am terrified to learn that he signed this surrender letter what did he tell CESIS to do all these years? I see Claude Lavadeur sign the letter. That's the opposite of, su- of a surprise. He was Jean Chrétien's foreign policy advisor. Chrétien left office as prime minister, and literally it took only weeks before he announced he was working as a China lobbyist. Weeks, not years or even months. Obviously, it was all planned while he was still the sitting prime minister, still making decisions about China. Corrupt, 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 but here's my point. Almost every week, there's another headline about someone in the United States secretly taking payments from China to help Chinese interests. Uh, Here's the case of a top scientist at Harvard who pocketed secret cash to help China. He's been uh, prosecuted for that. In Canada, I think we're a bit different. We don't make it a secret. Huawei and other Chinese companies just pour cash to all our institutions, our universities, our think tanks, our TV shows, liberal front groups. It's just a fire hose of Chinese money. We only know about some of it because most of it is not disclosed. Real talk for a second. How many of these very senior establishment figures who signed this letter have taken cash from China directly or more likely indirectly through a Chinese front group like Huawei, through a grant, through a well-paid speaking gig, through free trips, through a sponsorship, how many of these 19 people? Any of them? Well, we know that some of them have, as I've described. So some of them? Do you think it's most of them? <laughs> Do you think it's all of them? Do you think we'll ever find out? Maybe CSIS is looking into it. <laughs> then again, maybe Mr. Forche put a stop to that. Stay with us for more. Well, there's some words, especially especially old-fashioned words, that are out of vogue. Uh, You used to call a degree a bachelor's degree, and then a master's degree. And sometimes you would even call someone master, as if you're some sort of slave. (laughs) You know, even the word seminar. Well, that sounds like seminal, which the same root as the word semen. Oh, my God, how patriarchal. In fact, isn't the entire notion of a hierarchy so, so racist? And I point this out because of a great article by our friend Barbara Kay in the National Post who links so many things together, and I've been feeling it too. And Barbara's on the line, we'll introduce her in in one minute, but her piece in the Post called Learn from the Best While You Can is must-read journalism because it links it all together. The young authors and staff at J.K. Rowling's publishing house who go on strike because they have an opinion different than hers. She's the one who gave them all jobs. The young interns, some only at the National Post one year, demanding that Rex Murphy, the greatest writer of the newspaper, be run out of town because he's a 73-year-old white male. So outrageous, rather than from learning from the actual masters of the craft, they want to topple them like any statue. Joining us now via Skype from her home in Montreal is our friend, Barbara K. Barbara, this is... This is a very thoughtful piece. It, it reminds us of what we can learn from the past and maybe people hate that. Maybe people hate the idea that they have anything to learn. That their mom and dad and grandma and grandpa might have had to have dealt with the same things and thought things through. That maybe Shakespeare might have had the same considerations we do but could express it and solve it. I mean, that there's anything we don't know. Maybe that's why people hate learning from masters.
3: Well, I, I do think that uh, in the last 30, 40 forty years—the kind of education that a lot of the young people have in that are going into these professions, publishing and, and, and writing, and uh, even even the sciences nowadays—the uh, education they're getting is telling them that the past uh, everybody was wrong and 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 uh, did bad things and thought bad things and were racist and were terrible people, uh, and they've kind of got the truth. Uh, so the past is not worthy of respect, in any respect, because our culture is terrible and it was built on slavery and all of this. Uh, And the way forward uh, is the way of social justice, equity, diversity, inclusivity. And so these young people think, you know, we're the future, uh, everything that came before, why should we respect it? Why should we have any consideration? Because, uh, well, that's why we're pulling down statues, right? we want to eradicate the past uh, because the future is utopia and we have the secret uh, to social perfection. Yeah. So uh, we, uh, we have no respect for the past.
0: Yeah, we have secret knowledge now that has been hidden until this moment. And our morality is more thoughtful and deeper than any time before us. We're better educated than any time before us. We're, we see clearly no one else before us ever has. And so let's we, throw out everything from the past, especially the stuff we can't understand. Can I, I want to quote from your article, oh there's a line in here, Barbara, I really like it. Art, acting, surgery, sports, chess. If you want to achieve something beyond competence in these domains, you must accept subordination to a master, obviously that master can be a woman. For most of human history, in fact, apprenticeship to a master was the only way craftsmanship and scientific knowledge was passed down and the only way excellence could be preserved. well, and and there you see it. The, those, some of the statues being smashed are so artistically beautiful in themselves compared to the absolute crud that uh, dominates modern art. I'm not knocking all of modern art, but like so many things, before you tear down the past, ought you not to at least be able to understand it and equal it?
3: Yes, I agree with you. Uh, it's very sad to see this impulse uh and i do think there's there's huge symbolism in toppling statues uh this is a revolutionary the spirit it is that does this is is one of revolution and eradication uh this can be dangerous because this kind of uh anger and and triumph uh feeds on these acts of desecration Uh, it's an act of vandalism and it is uh, a kind it's it's saying we don't we don't follow prescription we don't follow law and order uh we we the people uh take matters into our own hands uh and we're making a statement here the state the statues are first people are next you know it's to me it's very similar to book burning and nothing good ever comes out of book burning
0: well and that's if you knock down a statue uh, as i said the other day on the show a statue is a symbolic representation of a man with ideas they're not knocking the statues down because they're ugly they're knocking them mm-hmm. down because of who they represent but imagine if you would knock down a mere statue it's just an image surely you would want to knock down the words and the books of the person you knocked down because that's actually what you hate you don't hate yeah, the lump I'm of never. metal you hate the, the so. books and the words so of course you'll burn the books and then finally you'll come to anyone who still animates those ideas
3: they're, they are burning books in a sense. Uh, Amazon is refusing to publish, uh, you know, Amazon self, is, is a vehicle for, self, for authors that are self-publishing their books. They're now refusing books that they don't like the ideas in. Uh, that to me is a form of book burning. Uh, schools, you know, high schools won't teach certain books because they have either bad words in them or bad thoughts, even if they are uh, written by great authors. Um, and that's a form of, you know, I mean, it's not actual book burning, but it's book banning. It's, it's putting, it's, it's uh, throwing, uh, art, uh, or past ideas into the memory hole. And once you go into the memory hole, um, it's like, it didn't happen.
2: Yeah.
3: Uh, that's again, a revolutionary act that is very chilling when you think about it. Uh, if you, if you are trying to eradicate your own history, um i think that's a terrible statement uh, for the next generation
0: can i ask you about the case that you refer to in your story you talk mm-hmm. about a Brock university professor named thomas hudlicky if i'm pronouncing his name right
3: hudlicky. H- hudlicky. Hudlicky.
0: Hudlicky. I, That's a hungarian name i take it is that right
3: it's, he's from the czech republic czech
0: republic thank you sorry I,
3: Czechoslovakia. so
0: yes. so he's probably has some old school ideas of academia the very kind of thing we're talking about learning from the best learning from history. Tell me the trouble he got into simply for using phrases like masters and apprentices. Everyone knows what those mean, but apparently you can't even say that anymore. What happened to Tomasz Hadliski?
3: Well, he, I should say, first of all, he is of a certain age. He's same, you know, around the same age I am. And uh, so he, yes, he he comes out of, and he comes out of a culture, uh, Czechoslovakia, uh, that's quite old school. Uh, and his, he, he wrote an article. it was actually uh, co- a commentary on, on an article that had been written 30 years ago about the state of um, the state of his field, which was organic chemistry and how was it going forward and uh, what, could, what improvements could be made in the transmission of knowledge um, and just general uh, commentaries on and it was a very much in-house, Article uh, published in a chemistry magazine, and I should also say about Professor Hoodlisky, uh is that he was attracted. He was he was recruited by Brock University because of his outstanding um, research and, and his his acclaim in his field. And Brock University is a mid-level university. It's it's not known as as a top-tier university, but uh, attracting this professor was a feather in their cap. He's a tier one research. Uh, professor, which means he's very top level. So you know, the work he's been doing so far, they've been very proud of him, they boast about him uh, until now. Anyways, he, he, he uh, for the 30th anniversary of this former professor's article, he published a gloss or a commentary on that older article. And he said that he's witnessed over the past 30 years, he's witnessed certain changes in the in the learning of organic chemistry and one of the things that he mentioned was the fact that graduate students are not working as hard as they used to and they're not working under the direction of a master and and he used the word in a totally academic academic way it's not like a slave
0: Uh, master
3: no you know you, you take a word that has several different meanings and uh because one uh, one meaning of the word master was, you know, applies to uh, race relations and, and slavery. Yeah, it's
0: like masterpiece okay. or my can, master yeah, you craft.
3: craft. Are you going to ban all these words? As a matter of fact, a friend of mine told me that at his company, they're no longer going to use the phrase master files <laughs> because it's, it's, it's offensive to uh, minority groups. Or look at Massey College. Uh, they used to call up uh, the, the um, head of the college, uh, the master of the college, and now he's called, what, the director or the principal or something else? So, but, but the word master itself has now kind of got this negative aura around it, and per, poor Professor Hudliski has no idea about any of that because he's not political at all. Uh, so he used this phrase, the master-apprentice relationship uh, is is dying out, That's not good. Uh, The only way to pass along true excellence is is uh, to have uh, the graduate students immerse themselves in this relationship of master-student. I mean, so he used this word a few times, and everybody went apoplectic. The chemistry journal withdrew the article. Um, The provost of the university wrote an open letter saying, "Oh my goodness, so distressing, so offensive, so harmful." So this is the graduate. there was a graduate student group that got together and they published an open letter saying, oh, this appalling rant, you know. You'd think that he would have such, I don't know, you'd think that he was a, a war criminal from the way they talked about him. Mm-hmm. And he was shell-shocked. He had no idea uh, what he had done wrong. Mm-hmm.
0: So They're the mad you know, ones, not him. You know, I, I was reading your article. You, you mentioned that your son, Jonathan Kaye, uh, when the National Post started some 20 years ago, was part of a group of young uh, writers who had a master writer, John O'Sullivan, former speech writer for Margaret Thatcher. I think he was with the Daily Telegraph in the UK. Um, brilliant man. Well, I was, I, I sat next to John, your son, uh, in the editorial board. And we would, it was a bunch of, I was 27 at the time. We were all young, we all thought we were so smart, we were all just <laughs> out of college, oh we were smart, and, and, and we would go, and John would start talking, and we all realized, okay, time for, I mean, can I tell you an anecdote about you you mentioned that that was the master apprentice relationship, it's absolutely right, I would submit my editorials, and I'm sure your son Jonathan did the same thing, and then I would go into John O'Sullivan's office and ask to stand behind him as he went line by line and he would, expl- I'd say, explain the edits you're doing. Oh, you're over egging the pudding too much here, you, you put this, you, you do too much of this, you're overusing this word, like, and you would, l- he would explain every jot and tittle, every change he made, so you didn't just submit your work and get it back edited, he would give you a live commentary as he edited your work. And of course it was better every time. This is one of the world's great writers and editors, And imagine the the arrogance of any 20-something who thinks they're a better writer. And I have one more anecdote to tell you. So it was the anniversary of a terrorist attack in the UK. And all of us had such strong things to say. Oh, I have something to say. And I, I mean, I was very certain I had the smartest thing to say. And John just said, oh, I remember it like it was yesterday. It was the most exciting night of my life. And then he explained what happened how the explosion happened and that and he just and he was there and that i mean that's not a writing anecdote that's like imagine the hubris of us 20-somethings who would dare to think that we knew more than this master about a terrorist attack in london when he was there it was the uh, the assassination attempt on margaret thatcher i think in, in brighton or something
2: um well
3: i have to say that i i'm so totally envious of you Uh, Ezra and my son and that whole editorial board, because when I started writing for the National Post and I would, you know, write what I thought was, I mean, I didn't, I wasn't sure any time I handed something in if it was good or not good. It was very haphazard. And every time I wrote something, I swept bullets over it. And I, I did like 10 revisions and I, I, I would have killed to have, I mean, if I could have had a John O'Sullivan standing over my shoulder saying, no, 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 you see that paragraph there. I mean, it would have been so golden uh, as an opportunity. And I'm jealous, I'm envious. And when I think of these young, wet behind the ears students, kids that just came out of, you know, English lit or whatever they came out of, and they're writing, they're at the New York Times or they're at these, they should... They should be on their knees with gratitude. First of all, to have a job in journalism, because a paying job in journalism nowadays is—they're just not that frequent that you get them. But they should be looking at their editors with reverence, or at least with respect. Or the—they should be thinking, what can this person teach me? And if they don't like something that this editor does, they should say to themselves, well, uh, I didn't—I didn't like that, but. If I didn't, if I don't like it that much, if it's that's so offensive to me, I can quit. I could go
0: to... You know, it's funny you say that because in your piece you used the word master, and I just told you before we went on air, and and I'm not embarrassed to say it. At the National Post, I irritated those around me by actually calling John master. I know that's, I'd say master, master, and and I know that sounds so nerdy and dumb, but I swear that's how I, I, I felt like whatever he said i knew in advance was right and if i if i had a different opinion i knew in advance i was wrong when you when you submit like that what else do you call someone but master you don't call him john who the hell am i to call him john and i'm i am like i've had three great masters in my life and i'll tell you this i worked for preston manning when i was a very young man and now i feel like in some ways i've exceeded his politics so I I no longer would call him a master, but for the two years I worked for him, I learned every single day from him. And Mike Walker of the Fraser Institute, I learned when I worked at the Fraser Institute, every word he said was so obviously an education. He was a PhD in economics, and I was extremely lucky to have time with him, and then my time with John O'Sullivan, and I regard myself lucky. And if in any of those instances something would have been so offensive to me, that I just couldn't swallow it and say, he's right, I'm wrong, that I should not be there. Exactly. I should not be. And imagine the chutzpah of me in any of those instances, a 27-year-old writer, a um, you know 22-year-old intern at the Fraser Institute, or... Uh, when I worked for Preston. I mean, imagine the chutzpah of a 27-year-old right out of school saying, no, I know better how to write than you, John. I know better about history than you. But that's exactly the mob that went after Rex Murphy, the mob that's going after this Tomas Hadliski, the mob that's going after J.K. Rowling. J.K. Rowling made all those junior editors and, and writers, and they have the chutzpah to try and take her down. They should quit the, the idea should. that it would run their master out of town, their mistress is
3: outrageous. But they, but they should, but the thing is that they, you know, it's not like they're saying, oh, we we know your craft better. Like it's not, it's not like they're saying, oh, we know how to edit better than right. you. What they're saying is your values are wrong. Right. And we're, they're the morality police. Right. They're the it, thought it, police. That's such they're a good point.
0: Police. That's such a good point they're not even arguing that they're better they don't even they don't even have that arrogance yet they're not saying i'm a better uh, creative fiction writer than you jk rowling i'm a better chemist than you thomas hadliski they're not they're not saying that they have a better command of the english language than rex murphy who happens to be an editor of a dictionary for heaven's sake they're just saying you're squaresville dude you're an old uh czech chemist who dresses like you're still in the 70s in the Eastern Bloc. What do you know? You're you're unfashionable. Oh, it's not your clothes. It's the fact that you use the word master. Oh, J.K. Rowling, gay icon, feminist icon. Well, you're not trans-friendly, so you're yesterday's news. That's that's what's so gross. It's it's the attack on yeah, I, Rex Murphy by out. those 20-somethings was purely horrible. personal.
3: You're, yeah, I'm. They're saying I look. I'm I'm your moral superior, yeah. and I'm and I'm telling you that you are a sinner. You sinned. And you need to, uh, you need to be punished for that sin. Uh, And they actually believe that an editor who's been there for 20 years and done a great job. uh, If they, if they make that one mistake in a headline, like in the Philadelphia Inquirer, that editor that put in the headline, buildings matter too, because he was talking about how uh, buildings were being defaced, And, and he had to leave, but they thought that was okay because, you know, if you sin, um, you've got to be punished and uh, when you feel that way, that's that's a religious, that's a very harsh religion, you know, it's like the Scarlet A. Yeah, uh, You've got to wear it, you've got to wear it and you've got to not be in polite society anymore, you've got to be shunned yeah. uh, because you, you, you've, you've you transgressed, you've this, transgressed. This is a tough crowd.
0: All these wokesters who watched The Handmaid's Tale, Uh, they pretended to be sympathizing with the women. I think they were actually learning lessons about the oppressive uh, theocracy. They're the ones shouting, shame, shame, aren't they? They They pretend they're with the women. They're on the other side of that. I didn't watch much of that. Well, Barbara, what a pleasure to talk to you. What an interesting thing. Don't mind me for telling you my personal stories. It's just when you mentioned how John, your son, felt about John O'Sullivan. I felt the same way. In fact, I was a bit ridiculous about it, but I, wa- I, it, I sort of yearned for that apprenticeship under a grandmaster. That's exactly how I felt. And there's not many of those people around. And I, and I knew that I was in a special time and place and I had one. And I'm lucky in my life, I've had three great masters. Even if I no longer keep in touch with them or even no longer agree with them, how can I deny that each of those three formed me in, in important ways, in politics, in economics, yeah. and in writing?
3: I'm glad you shared those anecdotes. And I think they make, uh, uh, I think they make my column come alive, in a way. And, uh, and it also speaks to the fact that you and my son's generation, your, your whole generation, um, you're the last ones to have that sense of um, hierarchy and, and reverence for your craft. You want to be good at what you're doing um, and, uh, and willing uh, to have that, that it, it passed down to you. The idea of, of intergenerational transference is a beautiful thing, but I think you're the last generation to feel that way. And that's a very sad thing to me.
0: That is very sad. Hopefully there are others. Barbara Craig, great, great to see you again. Thank you for being here, my friend.
3: Thanks, Ezra.
0: All right, there you have it. Barbara Kay, columnist at the Post Millennial and at the National Post, among other places. She joined us via Montreal. Stay with us. More ahead. Hey, welcome back. Our show last night. Uh, John writes, longtime member and support is on the way to protect our rebel army. So proud of the rebel team. Keep fighting for freedom. Thank you for that. Uh, I had hoped to have the big, big video for you tonight of our huge visit to City Hall yesterday where we had seven bodyguards, a lawyer, five cameras, et cetera. But the lads who were editing said, Ezra, we need a little more time to make it perfect. And I said, this is so important. There's so, you know what, they have five cameras worth of video. Even I took some footage on my phone. So just imagine, you got five different viewpoints, five different storylines and we've broken into they're putting together masterfully. I've I've seen a little bit of it. In fact, let me show you just a little taste. Can I show you a little taste? I wanted to have the whole video for you tonight, but I think you'll agree with me, we need to give this a little time to make it perfect. You'll see it you tomorrow, but take a look at this teaser.
2: I didn't, know enough, I
0: didn't, know. I didn't know. <laughs> What the hell? a Fuck, I swear to God. Two Don't hard. touch my guy. Come hey,
1: on, man. Dude,
2: look come, the come, man. man. Yeah, come
1: on. Don't
0: touch me again, buddy. want on a car. The purpose, as I mentioned earlier today, is to do journalism. We're not there to protest, but we're just going to be so compliant with the law that we're going to force the government to reveal itself. Are they really just trying to get rid of us because they don't like the cut of our jib? If so, that's illegal, that's unconstitutional.
2: That's why it's so critical that we're not engaging in any such conduct. Now, not that I would expect that, but it is really important that we're not riotous, we're not boisterous. We're not annoying, whatever that means. And and so we want to do that because that is what the government is going to be relying on. They're going to say they had every right based on this bylaw to eject, and it was a reasonable limit on our free expression right. All right, let's go downtown.
0: Aaron is coming with all sorts of legal precedents in hand, just in case, not if the protesters attack us. But if City Hall attacks us in real time, we're gonna meet our security detail at Old City Hall, then we'll walk across the street. And um, hopefully we'll be done in half an hour. Hopefully it'll be uneventful. But if, if the city and the police have other plans, we're as ready as we can be.
2: The police cannot arrest you or take any action against you unless they have reasonable and probable grounds that someone is in the commission or has committed an offense. So as long as as no offense has been committed, then in essence, the, uh, you know, the, a detention or an arrest is unlawful. Even, how about a touching? Like if, like if they touch
0: you and pull unlawful. you up? unlawful. If you try to make us the problem that we're not, we will hold your conduct to great scrutiny So I don't want to come across as threatening to the police, but what happened yesterday when our people were driven out of the public square by the police will never happen again on my watch for this company. How you doing? How are you? Fernando. Fernando, how you doing? Steve. Steve, how are you? We're here to assert not only our right as citizens, but we have a specific law called Section 2B of the Charter. What we're doing today is sort of like a symbolic march. We're going to go there. David's going to try and do journalism. Ideally, we're done in half an hour because nothing happened. It's not even that interesting a story. It's a bunch of tents. All right, well, I got my pass. That's for sure.
2: It's a diamond (laughs) VIP pass. The barcode. So official.
0: And on the back... My charter rights. All right, so that's coming. Mike writes, you're a hero, Ezra, really worrying how many Canadians don't think freedom of expression is under attack. Well, you know, it's funny, we, one of our fellows, I think I might have said this before, his name is Mocha, you've seen him, they chase him around. Um, he's originally from Turkey, and I don't know if, uh, I think he's okay with me telling his story. He actually, back in Turkey, was arrested and taken to the police station twice and I told him my story about when I was summoned by the uh, election commissioner and grilled about my book and all of that, and I was sort of a tough guy, but at the end of the day, I knew I was walking out of that Elections Canada office. I knew I wasn't going to a prison, and I knew, and I know that even though that case isn't done, I'm pretty sure that I'm gonna come out victorious, as in their absurd case against me will fail. Now, it's gonna cost me a lot of money, and a lot of time, and it's a stupid fight, but I'm, I'm pretty sure they're not gonna bust down my door at night and arrest me in the middle of the night. But our friend Mocha was literally in a Turkish police station twice. So I appreciate you calling me a hero, but we don't fight as hard as those in places like Turkey, Venezuela, Iran, China, North Korea. But I think that's why we have to fight now. As my old friend John O'Sullivan always said, it's easier to fight in the first ditch than the last ditch. I feel like that's what we're doing here at Rebel News. I don't want it to get so bad where I'm hauled down to a police station like our friend Mocha. I don't want it to get so bad where you're actually thrown in jail. So we're going to fight in the first ditch uh, because it's easier. TJ writes, we need Rebel News now more than ever. Keep on reporting. Oh, we absolutely will. It's absurd how much money we spend on security. And people always say, as we're all volunteer, all volunteer." I appreciate all the volunteers. I do not want volunteers. Volunteers are not insured. Volunteers are not licensed. Volunteers do not do this professionally. Volunteers uh, either don't know what to do, or maybe they're too eager for a fight. Uh, they're not a team. We had seven people. Imagine seven bodyguards working as a team, communicating. You can't just you can't just join that team as a volunteer. So I'm not. I'm not looking askance at the generosity and I'm not looking to spend more money. I just know that we're at a level of security needs that we can't mess around. That's why. Uh, Unfortunately, when you're at that level of security, uh, you're paying 100 bucks an hour, six hour minimum. You do the math on seven people, that's $4,200 plus tax just for yesterday, plus the day before, plus, 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 plus we had our lawyer down there. So we're coming up on $10,000, absolutely, this week alone. You know what's so insane, and let me close on this. You know there's a swear, I've done a few shows on it, a few stories on it before. There's this, I'm not gonna call it a practical joke because it's not really funny, it's not really a prank because it's not lighthearted. It's typically when there's a female reporter, but sometimes when there's a male reporter, doing a live hit on the street, often at a sports event. Someone will walk by and shout, F her right in the P. It's a very vulgar, extremely vulgar phrase. And it's just this thing that caught on somehow. And now people do it as a lark to, to, to basically heckle with this uniform profanity. And it's, it's, it's startling and harassing, but frankly nothing that our people don't put up with, far worse every single time they go out in public. And whenever that F her right in the P, strange insult phrase is said, oh, it's a national story and the CBC talks about Racism and sexism and the police say they'll investigate and here in Ontario one guy was identified and he was fired from his job with Ontario Hydro I think it was and uh, oh my god we need training and we need a law just for someone walking by uttering a swear and literally running off whereas our reporters get physically beaten while police and secure, uh, and city hall security stand idly by and not a peep out there so never 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 let some CBC dainty say oh someone swore in my presence we need a national crackdown nah sister you didn't care when our people got punched in the face Um, you'll have to wait in line a little bit for me to care about the fact that you got heckled in public just another double standard well that's the show for today I can hardly wait till tomorrow to show you the full version of the video I'm referring to until then on behalf of all of us here at Rebel World Headquarters and you at home good night and keep fighting for freedom